Hello, I'm Nicole Abadie and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Today I'd like to welcome to the podcast Lionel Shriver, who's going to talk to me about her new book, The Motion of the Body Through Space, published in Australia by HarperCollins. Lionel, as most of you will know, is an American writer and journalist who lives in London and Brooklyn. She writes fiction and non-fiction, and her most well-known book is We Need to Talk About Kevin, which won the Orange Prize for Fiction in 2005 and was made into a movie starring Tilda Swinton. Her journalism has appeared in The Guardian, The New York Times and The Wall Street Journal, and she writes regularly for Harper's Magazine and The Spectator. Lionel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'd like you to start by reading us an extract from your book to set the scene, and then I'll talk a little bit about it and then start asking you some questions. Okay, well, um, this book is about a, a couple, and the, uh, the woman has always been the fitness freak of the two, and then uh, she's having some medical problems, especially with her knees, and has had to cut way down, whereas her husband, Remington, has just announced that he's going to run a marathon. Um, and her response to this is a big eye roll. So this is very early in the book. And uh, Remington has just uh, come back with a ludicrous sports getup and is stretching in the living room. Remington's getup was annoying by any measure. Leggings, silky green shorts with undershorts of bright purple and a shiny green shirt with purple netting for aeration, a set, its price tag dangling at the back of his neck. His wrist gleamed with the new sports watch. On a younger man, the red bandana around his forehead might have seemed rakish, but on Remington at 64, it looked like a costuming choice that cinema-goers were meant to read at a glance. This guy is a nut. In case the bandana wasn't enough, add the air traffic control orange shoes with trim of more purple. He only bent to clutch an ankle with both hands when she walked in. He'd been waiting for her. So, fine, she watched. He held the ankle, raised his arms overhead, and dived for the opposite leg. As he teetered on one foot while tugging a knee to his chest, she left for her Earl Grey. On her return, he was bracing both hands against a wall and elongating a calf muscle. The whole ritual screamed of the internet. My dear, she said, there's some evidence that stretching does a bit of good, but only after you've run. All it accomplishes beforehand is to put off the unpleasant. You're going to be a real bitch about this, aren't you? Probably, she said lightly and swept back upstairs. When the front door slammed, she ventured onto the second story side porch to peer over the rail. After poking at the complicated watch for minutes, the intrepid began his inaugural run, trudging out the gate and down Union Street. She could have passed him at a stroll. Lionel, thank you. I think that sets the scene very well. 
just to add a couple of facts for our listeners, Remington's 64. His wife, Serenata, is 60. They've been married for 32 years. They have two adult children, Valeria and Deacon, and they live in Hudson, New York. Lionel, as you've explained, the book opens with Remington all of a sudden springing something on Serenata that he's decided to run a marathon. Could you tell us a little bit about Remington and Serenata? What are they like as people? And then I'd like you to talk, tell us a little bit about what their relationship is like. Well, um, Serenata's uh, kind of, uh, other people think she's aloof, um, tends to keep to herself, uh, regards her rec- exercise regime as private, um, her business. Uh, she hates groups. She hates, she's not a joiner. So this whole idea of running a marathon is repulsive to her. You know, all those thousands of other people. If she's going to go running, it's going to be by herself. Um, and she's that way about everything. Remington is much more sociable. He always has been. Uh, she's self-employed. Uh, she's a voiceover artist. Whereas he has been working for the Department of Transportation in Albany um, before getting sacked in ignominiously and you have to wait to find out why. Um, but that helps to explain why he's so desperate to prove himself in another area. Uh, and obviously, Serenata is uh, hostile to this uh, ambition to run a marathon, um, which she considers, among other things, incredibly trite. I mean, this declaration these days is old hat, right? Everyone wants to run a marathon. In fact, it, it, it seems as if everyone has run a marathon. Um, and so as he becomes more and more involved in what I call the cult of exercise, uh, the, she has trouble negotiating the marriage because it becomes his whole life. Once he gets through his marathon thing, he fastens on to the triathlon. And that's even more demanding. And he also takes on a very sexy, younger personal trainer who has contempt for Serenata and is very flirtatious with the husband. So you can imagine there's a lot of tension. We're going to talk about some of those things a little bit further on. Can you tell me a little bit, as the book opens, where they're at before he starts this marathon training, how would you describe their relationship? Well, it's it's companionable. Um, they've gone through, he, he, he's lost his job very recently. They've gone through a trauma. Um, she was on his side through this trauma. But of course, in fiction, there's no story when everyone's getting along. So it's been, I think it emerges that it's been a, a pretty harmonious relationship, that things have been, as you say, they've been getting along well. And this is the um, this is the little bump in the road for them. Lionel, in this book, you deal with a whole lot of interesting topics. You talk about or you you write about the obsession with exercise, the challenges that can shake the strongest of marriages, difficult adult children, ageing and identity politics. We're going to talk about all of those things today. Let's start with the obsession with exercise. As you've said, Remington becomes obsessed, first of all, with training a marathon but that's not good enough for him. He then decides he wants to run a triathlon as well. What is it that has prompted this? What is it that has uh, prompted this 64-year-old man who's, although he's trim, has never really had shown much of an interest in exercise before? 
Why has he suddenly decided to take on this challenge? Well, I mean, at the risk of sounding kind of naff, he's looking for meaning. He's looking for a purpose. He's, um, he was very involved in his job. Mm-hmm. He, he loved his job. And now he, is, he needs a new focus. He needs to justify himself in some way. He's, you know, he, he was sacked at an awkward time. 64 is not that old anymore. And he could live, you know, prospectively another 30 years, which is daunting. It's also an age, though, that you're unlikely to get another job. So he's kind of lost. And, you know, there, we have become so obsessed with exercise and we expect so much of it that uh, it's, it's, it's sort of waiting for him. It's a... Uh, it's, it's it's lurking in the cultural atmosphere. It's, it, it almost finds him rather than he find, finds it. And, uh, and we think, you know, we think exercise not only uh, is the route to uh, being eternally beautiful and eternally youthful and, and basically cheating death, uh, but we also seem to believe now that it's a, a spiritual pursuit. So that it it is an it gives you an access to uh, a, a a higher a, and more spiritually fulfilled version of yourself. You know, there there are a lot of people now for whom you know, going to the gym or or running these uh, endurance races it's their whole lives. Mm-hmm. And uh, while in some ways they're not doing anyone any harm, so I don't want to be too hard on such people. It it does tend to make you rather trying <laughs> as company when that's all you've got to talk about and all you really care about. And let's be honest, it isn't an altruistic activity. It's an, an indulgence. It's a form of narcissism. And what I try to oppose in this book within the couple is it our alternative attitudes toward keeping in shape, which, you know, I'm all for. It's not that I'm anti-exercise, but I think we need to have a sense of proportion about it. And Serenata um, thinks that it's just a mechanical matter. It's not a spiritual matter, and it's not the purpose of life. The reason that you keep in shape is to be able to do other things. I wanted to ask, well, there's a lot that you've just said that I want to come back to. Let's start perhaps with um, the religious analogy. So you use a lot of that language in this book. You use a lot of religious metaphors. You talk about fetishizing. I don't think I've got that right, of fitness. You talk about Rem who's worshipping with his, con- Remington who's worshipping with his congregation, slaking a religious thirst, repudiating the flesh. How do you see this obsessional addiction to exercises being like a religion or a cult? What are the what are the similarities between the two? Um, well, I think uh, that whole thing of the mortification of the flesh is is a constant theme in classical religions uh, and suffering the uh, ad, the adulation of suffering and the viewing of suffering as uh, the, the the fire through which you are purified. And on the other side of which you are blessed and you ascend to the right hand of God the Father or whatever you happen to believe in. Um, and in fact, the, um, the uh, books uh, 
epigraph is uh, from Melanie Reeves, The World I Fell Out Of, who, who wrote, the glory of suffering might be humankind's biggest ever recyclable con trick. So, you know, that, that, um, that kind of defiance of physical limits, I think is, is very religious in content. <laughs> Lionel, you've said about this book that it's one of the most hypocritical books that you've ever written because it criticises those with an unhealthy obsession with fitness, although you yourself have exercised regularly all your life. What I'm wondering is when does a healthy desire to stay fit and well cross the line into the unhealthy fitness fundamentalism that you write about here? Um, it's completely subjective. So, um, I mean, one of my favourite lines in the book is from a younger character who says something like, um, anyone who gets less exercise than you is pathetic. And anyone who gets more exercise than you is not. I and love I, that and line. <laughs> I have found that to be perfectly true, perfectly yeah. true. Yes. And what's interesting about that is that uh, you can't win. When you tell someone else what your own fitness regime is, they immediately compare themselves to you. And if you do more than than they they do, then they're going to hate you. They're going to hate you. They'll probably not believe you, right? Because they don't want to believe you. Um, and they're going to dismiss you as some kind of fanatic who has a problem. But if you get less exercise than you, then they pity you and feel superior to you. So it's funny because um, I've I've known from the start that doing interviews uh, for for the publicity of this book was going to put me in exactly that no-win situation. And when, um, I, actually, this is very near the beginning of the release, so I haven't had much experience. I'm, I'm experimenting on you. Please. But on, on what little experience I've had so far, I have tried to avoid direct questions about what I do for physical exercise. And I'm not, going to, ask, I'm not going to ask exactly, you that. Exactly. Because you're going to hate me nope. or have contempt for me Either way. No, I want to hear about Serenata and Remington. The only thing that I thought was right. interesting was that you yourself had said it was hypocritical. I, I thought that was interesting. Oh, it's Talking definitely to... hypocritical. <laughs> and I think, you know, that's one of the things that, that made it an interesting subject for me um, because it is, it is partly about self-examination, not just looking at other people and their sad little problems. It's my own sad little problems. I think it's very interesting with Serenata that she goes from being somebody who absolutely prides herself on her fitness and her ability to exercise, but then when she's compared to what Remington becomes and the people that he's doing the triathlon, uh, how, how they train and the way they feel, she's regarded as the sluggard and the, the slothful one. Something yes, and that's not a, not a role she's accustomed to. Um, and, and, again, that's an illustration of my little aphorism because she's, you know, you know, fitness is relative. So suddenly she's she's around people who train all day and do insane distances. In comparison, she can't compete. She she's the pathetic one. Something that she says at one point, you you spoke a little bit earlier about why in her heyday when she was able to exercise fully, she's now limited because of the problems with her knees, but in her heyday. She exercised, she says, to maintain a sense of order and control. 
She fears that if she stops exercising, everything else in her life will fall apart. So I was wondering, is that healthy and normal? Or is that just as obsessive as Remington is in his own way? Um, in a way, it is, it is just as obsessive. Uh, and that's, I mean, I, that's where I confess to being like my protagonist. Um, and I think it's commonplace now. This latching on to a, a particular regime, whatever it is for you, right? Um, that it, it, it becomes definitional of maintaining control, having order in your life, being loyal to yourself, um, not, you know, not allowing other people to impinge on something very central. I mean, I, um, I know that uh, when I'm on tour for a book, in the days that we had book tours. Um, <laughs> they'll, they'll come again. Um, to me, the, the, the one thing that I, I tell publicists, I need, you know, I need an hour a day or something. I, you have to plan that in the schedule or I'm going to be unhappy. And it, that, that has to do with just maintaining a grip, yeah. right? And it's a little ridiculous because what's going to happen to any of us if we skip a day? Right. Or even a week. You can go a week without exercise and not really your body's not going to change very much. But it has to do with the interior. It has to do with a sense of self-possession. Mm. Yeah. There's a lovely part in the book where Serenata gives herself a bit of time off where she um, she goes for a swim in the pool and she says something like it's the first time she's ever just floated in a pool rather than immediately hopping in and starting to do laps and counting the laps. Uh, yeah, I thought that was that was really interesting. I want to come back now to a character that you mentioned early on. Tell us a bit about this personal trainer with the uh, unlikely name of Bambi Buffer, who has <laughs> the kind of figure used to sell gym memberships. Uh, Remington meets her when he runs the marathon. How does he meet her? And then tell us a little bit about her and the relationship between her and him that develops. Well, Bambi Buffer, which is a, you know, it's obviously a made-up handle. It's what she uses to um, to get clients. Um, and she has one of these improbable paragons, you know, that I'm sure we've all seen them now, you know, who've been um, to the gym so much that every single muscle is defined. It, it's, I think there's, she's described as look, looking, looking like a walking anatomy book illustration um and uh remington does run a marathon if very very slowly he takes over seven and a half hours which you can and you can almost do a marathon at a walk at that pace. i have to i have to ask you and excuse my ignorance how long would you be hoping to take to do a marathon to give it to give it a fair go oh you know you should normal people should be able to do it in a like four hours, okay. Something like that. So he's taken okay. seven. It varies enormously, and and if you can't do it in four hours, don't take that wrong. I mean, I had no. I've never actually run a marathon, so I would have had to look it up. But it shouldn't um, take seven hours. It should certainly not take seven and a half hours. And um, uh, when Remington is coming in towards the finish line, and his wife is poised there, waiting to clap for him because she's going to do that um he doesn't pay attention to her and doesn't even doesn't even look for her in the crowd 
and he's running beside this exquisite, you know, perfect woman, right? And it he he ends up inviting this woman to their celebratory dinner, and it turns out that um, that Bambi ran alongside him to help get him through the last few miles. Uh, but she was on her second circuit. That is, <laughs> she ran the marathon twice. And um, that's, I mean, that's all you need to know as to what kind of person this is. And she's, um, you know, she's a personal trainer. She makes money off of this. This is her, this is her uh, life's calling. And you know, she's, she becomes a kind of spiritual advisor. She's, she's more like a priest than a personal trainer. And so it's, it's, it's carrying on that, that religion metaphor. Um, but, uh, so she's charismatic in her own way, isn't she? And she establishes, she certainly has, gets a hold on Remington. She gets a hold over him, but on some of the other members of the training team as well. Yes. Um, she, uh, operates a tri club. I mean, there are such things for triathlons that, that whole clubs of people who are training for a particular event together. And uh, the tri club uh, ends up coming over to Serenata and Remington's house all the time. So they are m- major, mi- major minor characters, if you will. And they're not, they're, they're not meant to be all terrible people, but they are emblematic of a whole... A, a whole way of being that is this is their whole lives this is the, the this training is the very um center of of what they care about and it's all they talk about how does serenata get on with Bam, bambi and how does she fit in with the group as a whole well of course serenata can't stand bambi and bambi is um is really condescending to serenata and dismissive of any athletic achievements in Serenata's life because they don't compare to what they do in the tribe club. Um, and so the, the relationship is quite frosty. Lionel, let's move on to talk now a little bit more about the relationship between Remington and Serenata and the impact of his training on that relationship. It becomes pretty clear that it's been up until now a pretty good marriage. At one point, you use some lovely expressions. At one point, you say she and Remington were too happily married. They didn't need other people enough. At another point, you say that when they have people over for dinner, they never want to talk to anyone more than they want to talk to each other. So one question I wanted to ask you is how important is conversation and banter in their relationship? Terribly important. I mean, um, I mean, for one thing, I'm an author who writes a lot of dialogue so because and one of the reasons i write a lot of dialogue is i like to read it i love novels that have lots of talk in them i like to i I like characters to be like little wind-up toys that you just set running and then they just go (laughs) and um in fact in recent years i've even become a little impatient with um you know, all those little directions, almost like stage directions that you have in dialogue that people are doing things and they put down a glass or whatever. I get tired. I, I, I skip over that stuff when I'm reading and I've, start, I've started trimming it down to practically nothing in the book. 
because I like dialogue to just rip. And, and um, it certainly and does. It's a very good way, a good, great way to illustrate relationships. There's no better way to get how people get on with each other than to just let them talk. Mm-hmm. And then all kinds of little tensions or shared jokes or um, will come to the surface. And this has been a very bantery marriage, a kind of playful. They have that little bit of um, competition in that you talk this. That's what banter is all about. Um, and, and it's playful. It's fun. It's one of their main entertainments. And, and they, uh, they really spark off each other. That those sparks fly off the page with the, the dialogue yeah. between them, I think. The problem is the different perspectives that they take about his exercise um, project begin to, I think he used the expression, open up fissures in the relationship. How is that? How does it start to crack? What starts to go wrong? Well, the problem becomes very fundamental because, you know, any any good marriage is between people who respect each other uh, on some deep level. It doesn't mean that you admire everything they do or that, you know, it, but there there is still a regard there. Um, and that's what goes wrong. Because Serenata has a growing contempt for what her mm-hmm. husband has now latched onto as his purpose in life. And she thinks it's dumb not to put too fine a point on it. It's dumb. It's a dumb way to spend your time. It is a, an unimportant thing to want to accomplish. He thinks that if he can get through a triathlon, you know, he's become beatified, right? This is, this is, the, will be the crowning achievement of his life. And she thinks it's, it's a negligible achievement, you know, that it's, it's, it's an act of narcissism and it doesn't change anything. And it certainly doesn't do anything for anybody else. And that's one of the things that you're meant, meant to notice is, um, though, you know, the book, the text never tells you per se but little by little, you should start picking up that though Serenata is, by reputation, very cold, um, she's the only one in the book who ever does anything for anybody else. She's actually, in a very quiet way, considerate and compassionate, doesn't make a big deal out of it. She's the one who completely takes over uh, taking care of Remington's elderly father. Great. That's right. Um, yeah. Right? Yes. Whom Remington has just started utterly ignoring because yeah. he has to train. Yeah. Um, and one of the very unpleasant things about the difference is that Remington, instead of hearing what she's saying and thinking about her reasoning, just accuses her of being jealous and just says, you're, you're just being like that because, you know, because of your knees, you can't exercise anymore and you're just jealous of what I'm doing. So there's really a, a miscommunication between them, isn't there, which it sort of seems like hasn't ever arisen before. That is the standard um, accusation by anyone who gets involved in endurance sports in particular, which are so involving and, and so so incredibly demanding. Um, if you think that it's a waste of time, they'll just accuse you of not being up to it yourself, right? 
you can't do it. And you're, and you're jealous because I have this wonderful body and I've really asked a lot of myself and I have, I have, I can uh, complete all these great feats of, of strength and stamina and you can't, you're not up to it. And so you have to tear it down size. Uh, uh, and I've seen this, you know, many times before. And this is the kind of thing that the Tri Club talks about all the time. Though, ironically, one of the things that Serenata points out is to her, he's actually becoming less attractive because he looked really good as he was. But from all this exercising, he loses so much weight that he becomes almost incredibly gaunt. And to her, he actually looks a whole lot less attractive than he did when he started. Yeah. Yeah. And um, there's another aspect to that uh, loss of attractiveness because when your body, we've all seen these people, when your body exhibits the result of that kind of fanaticism, that huge amount of time that that maintaining it in its in its condition, uh, when it when your body gives that away, that it it becomes. I mean, to me anyway, when I see some of these people who are like so perfect that you know they spend all day in the gym, I find that a little bit off-putting, right? And, and, and that's how Sarah Nada starts to see her own husband, that his body becomes an emblem of his obsession, and the obsession is not attractive. And that becomes physically embodied in his figure. And, and that, so, so he's, she's actually physically less attracted to him. And it's also, as you said before, the self-absorption, that his, his total self-absorption and narcissism, that, that is a real turnoff for her. Yes, and, and, and again, the body speaks of that narcissism. It displays it. Lionel, let's talk a little bit now about the couple's adult children. Tell us, first of all, about uh, their daughter. What's she like? Well, Valeria is a, um, a born-again Christian, and of course, you know, it's not a coincidence that element is in the book because obviously, you know, I'm going for this larger religious conversion on the husband's part. Um, and she's one of these people who has a chip on her shoulder. Um, you know, we're living in a time when everyone needs to have been abused in some way um, in order to um, to have standing. In We all need a we all need to have suffered. Uh, we all need to have been um, mistreated. It can be sexual. It can be something else. But, uh, we, you know, it's this whole elevation of victimhood. And, um, and she's bought into this. The weird thing is that they, her parents can't figure out what it was that they did that she's so pissed off about. Right? They didn't, you know, set her in a frying pan or, you know, lock her in a closet for weeks or there was none of that. And they really can't put their finger on what what she's so aggrieved about. And then finally, and she actually disappears for four years Mm. and they have no idea where she is, which is cruel, actually, to do that to parents. Mm. And she's in her 20s. by now. Yeah, finally shows back up and announces that 
her a great deal of therapy and, and after speaking to her her pastor, um, she's decided to forgive them. <laughs> and they don't know what they're being and they forgiven don't, for. You don't know what they're being forgiven for. So <laughs> I mean it's not a big part of the book, but I enjoyed it. <laughs> and Lionel, she's particularly hostile to her mother, which is interesting. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of um back chat and throwaway lines about her mother's exercise, a lot of disparaging, and she's quite overweight herself and isn't sporty. And she makes quite a lot of disparaging remarks about her mother's exercise over the years. I guess it's it's important to know that Valeria is a little overweight. Um, and I, I'm afraid this is a commonplace kind of tension between mother and daughter. Uh, sometimes it's the other way around. Sometimes it's mothers who have um, you know, over the years, got a, a little dumpier. It's awful easy to do, and then they've got these beautiful daughters, and they're and they're jealous. You know, it's it, it's it's painful. Um, you, you see, maybe what you have lost, or maybe worse, what you never had in the first place. Um, but in this case, it's the other way around. And Valeria has always been a little, a little rounded, right, and. Um, that's never bothered her mother. Her, her mother has never given her a hard time about it. But of course, we know what it's like in the larger social world. And being a little overweight is a terrible disadvantage. And so Valeria is very resentful of her mother and uh, has, uh, has bad memories of all throughout her childhood. You know, her mother never... Um, let anything in the family interfere with her all hallowed exercise. So it's very specifically source of Valeria's resentment. Tell me or tell us a little bit now about Deacon, their son. He's the he's the bad sheep. <laughs> um, there's more than a suggestion that he's dealing drugs as an adult, <laughs> but um, he was uh, he was a liar. He was uh, a compulsive uh, thief, and and he would steal things he had no interest in. The the, the idea was that he he stole to stole, the, the, to stole to steal, um, just for the joy it was, of it. it. It was just for the joy of depriving other people mm. of something that mattered to them. It's not that he wanted it. it, it the thing is that though Deacon is a bad boy. Uh, he and his mother have a funny kind of affinity. Yeah, she almost because, has a grudging admiration for him. Yeah, he's not a conformist. No. Right? And he's not looking to please. He's not out for other people's admiration. Mm. He does whatever he damn well wants. He's also a pretty good-looking guy. Mm. Also, a good-looking guy who never... What, what was the line? Um, whose idea of exercise is carrying a six-pack and a bag of Doritos to the car. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, he's and, and there are any number of people who get away with being rivetingly attractive and never pick up a barbell. And and I'm, I, I, I always kind of admire them. I do. So at one point, or no, at different points in the book, uh, Remington describes his kids at one point he just when he's talking to his wife Serenata at one point he describes them as white trash at another time he talks about them as grave disappointments I guess the first question was how did two 
happy, compatible, apparently normal people or parents produce such dysfunctional children? It happens all the time, you know. And I think, I, I think in, in fiction you have to remember that it happens all the time because the temptation is to, to make happy children from happy families, right? Doesn't that make sense? But the truth is that children often seem to have almost no relationship to their parents. You know, that it, it, it can be quite confounding how these people came out of those people. And I deliberately put together that kind of family. You know, they, they, we, we're meant to understand that they were conventionally supportive and, you know, they, they, they nurse their children's enthusiasms or whatever, you know, the way you're supposed to. Uh, but something went a little wrong in both instances. And one of the things that went wrong with Valeria is that uh, her mother had always been a very independent person, even in childhood. Loved nothing more than to be left alone to play or get on with things. She loved just being creative or on her own. And she was very grateful to her own children, to her own parents, for giving her that kind of independence and ability to develop in, into her own person. So that's the kind of mother she was with her own daughter because that's what she enjoyed so much. But in truth, Valerio is not that kind of person at all. She needed constant attention. She didn't want to be left on her own. Uh, she she wanted someone to nurture her and 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 uh, you know address her problems together rather than solve them on her own. She's she's a little fragile. She has a I guess what we'd say poor sense of self, a weak sense of self. And so I liked that that irony of of trying to be the kind of parent that you would want and it backfiring so fantastically. Let's move on now to the topic of ageing and how Remington and particularly Serenata are dealing with that because it seems to me that's quite another important theme of the book. We know, we learn that Serenata is a very attractive woman. All of her life, for 47 years, she's been exercising to keep herself in great shape. She's always turned heads and at 60 or 61, she still does. But now she's starting to have some problems. She's got dodgy knees. She's facing the prospect of uh, knee replacement surgery and she's getting older. So she has to deal with two things. One is her physical infirmity, that she's not as physically strong or capable or able to do the sort of exercise that she wanted to do. The other is the fact she's not now as sexually attractive as she has been uh, for many years. How does Serenata deal with uh, those things? I guess to begin with, not all that well. You know, I think aging is one of the hardest things to do in life uh, it, with uh, grace. I, um, I, it, it is certainly becoming one of my favorite subjects, and it's not a coincidence that I'm getting older myself. Uh, my mind comfort being that so is everyone else. Um, and I think it's especially difficult for the athletically minded because throughout your younger life, if, even if you get into a, a very private um, 
version of athleticism, you know, just going for a run. Um, you have a kind of ongoing competition with yourself, right? Even if it's not social, you expect your running time to, if anything, improve, right? And if anything, you're going to want run for a, a longer distance, not a shorter distance. And this whole idea of starting to scale back to run to run more slowly and to run less far is anathema. It's anathema. And it seems like um, a failure of will. That's what it feels. That's, that's the sensation. And uh, it's very difficult to learn to forgive yourself. And I think that aging is a lot about self-forgiveness. And if you are married, uh, it's also about forgiving your spouse. Uh, and it, it's, that word is, uh, I, I think it's the right word, but I need to qualify that part of that forgiveness is a recognition that it's not as if anybody did anything wrong here, right? If you're not forgiving someone for being, for having screwed up, <laughs> it's, it's because that's what happens and it's not their fault. And there's a, I mean, it, there is a way in which we seem to blame people for getting older. There's a, there's a, I just noticed, especially in relation to celebrities, there's a kind of tutting and also this superiority or, uh, and contempt that, that attends uh, celebrities that are always supposed to have been beautiful and icons. And, and then and we all look at them and say, hmm, really, you know, the cracks are starting to show um, with a sense of creepy satisfaction. Or alternatively, and if they I, do something to stem that process by having cosmetic surgery, they're criticised for that as well. Oh, yes. It's, an, it's another... Uh, you can't win. You can't win. No. <laughs> right? So it's like, oh, she's had work done. You know, we can tell. Um, she's, you know, you, you look at the uh, these faces and you can actually identify particular surgeries, Right that have changed their faces or made them tighter. Um, it's a kind of ugly spectator sport watching celebrities get older. Lionel, I want to ask you now about identity politics and cultural appropriation, something that you've, you've talked about over the years. Oh, you've, goody. <laughs> you've spoken... Just and, what I want to talk about. Good. You've spoken and written about... No, that was sarcastic, honey. <laughs> well, you raise, you raise it in the book, so I think that we have to talk know, about it a little fault. bit. It's totally my fault. <laughs> um, you, you've written a lot about your opposition to identity politics and to this whole concept of cultural appropriation, and you've argued cogently that writers, fiction writers, shouldn't be confined to only writing about people like themselves and certainly shouldn't need to seek permission to write about minorities. Could you tell us what you see as the fundamental problem with identity politics? And then I'm going to come to a couple of examples, illustrations that you use in the book and how you raise that issue. Um, I mean, on the cultural appropriation front, I, I don't think it's a, uh, I don't think it's viable uh, for the creation of art. And I also don't think, I just don't think it's very nice. I don't think it's very generous to want to, um, draw a circle around your own culture, whatever that is, right? I mean, it's almost impossible to define. And say, 
other people can't come in here. This belongs to me. Go away. You can't touch. I, I, I find that rather unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole touch and feel of identity politics is unpleasant. It's, uh, it pits people against each other. It looks for ways in which we're different and tries to maintain uh, the hard edges of those differences. Whereas my whole inclination is quite otherwise. Um, I'm from an earlier generation. I thought the whole idea was to break down that barriers between the races, between the sexes, between everyone and everything, and to understand that we all have a common humanity and um, to increase in understanding of each other. And the, the whole poli- identity politics movement is adversarial by nature. And it's all about grievance. It's all about, and then that's why, you know, Valeria would feel that she needs her grievance to, to have a, a kind of cultural validity. Uh, because it's grievance in, in this movement that gives you power. It's all about power. And that's one way of looking at the world, but I find it kind of ugly and flat. Now, I think there are other, there are other uh, factors at play in the world other than who's got power over whom. And I also think that the movement is very little sensitive to the fact that there are many different kinds of power. And it's not only economic. I mean, what we're talking about right now, being incredibly fit and attractive gives you a certain power, even if you make no money. Let's talk about, there's a number of examples of the book. I don't want to give too much away, so I won't talk about all of them, but let's pick one of them. The way that this issue impacts upon Serenata and her job as a voiceover artist. So earlier on in the book, Tommy, a young neighbour who has a really good relationship with Serenata, warns her that it's not great for white readers of audiobooks to use the accents of people of colour. And later on, Serenata is also told that by somebody else that she's working with. What's the reason given for that and what's Serenata's response? I'm not quite sure whether this actually is an issue in the audiobook industry, but I can see how it could be. Um, And uh, I certainly noticed when I'm writing my books, I get a little anxious about transcribing accents even lightly, which I I would tend to do lightly because I I just think that's better craft. It's less distracting. Um, but I also enjoy the different ways that people speak. And um, you know, because as we discussed, I write a lot of dialogue. Then it's nice to be able to convey to the reader not just the different words that people are using and what they're saying. But also the way they're saying it, the way they, they, the way they pronounce words, the, the, the whole rise and fall of their accent. And these days, you never know whether that's going to get you into trouble. Well, because Serenata is told that it's for mimicry. Serenata is told that that's yes. mimicry and that's not permissible. Mimicry. That's right. That you're, you're, you're imitating someone and therefore you're implicitly making fun of them. That is, a, that is a form of ridicule. And, um, and I think that comedians are starting to have trouble with this. Because, you know, a lot of stand-up uses accents. And often comedians, like a lot of performers, are good, good at accents, you know. And it's a way of giving texture to your routine. 
And now I think it's getting a little delicate, uh, w w whether you use accents. Now, the irony being, of course, that if, uh, if a, say, a black comedian goes into a white guy accent, that's fine. <laughs> so it's not quite fair. But it's an interesting, it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting question. I thought, I, so, and I thought that it might arise in Serenata's professional life. It also arises in Remington's, but we won't talk about that. We'll leave that to the listeners when they read your book to find out how it arises for him. You've also said, not only do we have to preserve the right to write characters who are different from ourselves, we have to preserve the right to have characters who think things that are unacceptable. Why is that so important? Well, we live in a very politically prescriptive time. And, of course, there's a way in which we always do. There's always a, an orthodoxy of, an, of the era. There are certain things you're supposed to think. Um, but the, the danger of having your whole book and all the characters in it subscribe to what everyone is supposed to think and what everyone is supposed to say is that inevitably that leads to uh, a homogenized uh, set of viewpoints that is, it's not dynamic, um, it's not interesting to read, and it's flat. Mm. Also, if you want to talk about controversial subjects, then you need to go at them from a number of different viewpoints in order to get where what's what's the what is the controversy right where, where's the conflict mm. you need to look at what what people are disagreeing about mm. and i and sometimes it's going to be a good idea to put those different viewpoints in as extreme a form as possible to bring out what 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 in what way do these people look at things from a completely different perspective um, how do they see the world so differently? Uh, if you can no longer have even characters saying things that are regarded as politically incorrect, then you really mean that there are whole sets of subjects that you cannot go at with any honesty. Um, and I, 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 I like the freedom of letting characters think things that, and say things that are against the rules. Uh, and I'm really anxious about an increasing tendency in um, criticism and um, amongst the reading public to just assume that even what characters say uh, reflects the author's point of view, which of course, when you have a book as so frequently I write, where you know, you've got characters who see see things very differently, see the same subject very differently. That Multiple points of view. Both of those things can't be true, right? right? Um, and, and to me, that, that freedom to have characters speak abominations is, is crucial to artistic freedom. And I really don't want to have a character say something and the reader thinks, oh, that's what Lionel Schreiber thinks. And that, if that's, if that is the case, then why don't I just write a bunch of op-eds and comment pieces? Lionel, you've written 15 books. I think, I'm, I think that's right. This is your 15th book. I think that's right. I think you've got the count. 
and you have said that it gets harder each time. Was this one hard to write? No, funnily enough, I mean, I say lots of things, so I'm sure I said it gets harder each time in a book that I was having a hard time with. <laughs> I didn't have a hard time writing this book. I had a ball writing this book. And um, Why did you really, enjoy it? Why did you enjoy it so much? Well, I think I liked the subject matter. I really came to like the characters. Um, when I started out, I was a little anxious about it because I was worried that the subject that I had chosen was perhaps a little too small, if you know what I mean. It, that it was, it was uh, insufficiently meaty, you know. It, 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 but once I got into it, I decided it was actually a very large subject. And that's, that's partly because it, it, it had so much to do with the subject of aging and mortality, which, I mean, there, there isn't any bigger subject, really. It's, and it's what, what we're all going through. So it, it can't be small unless being a person is small. Right? And, and so I, it, the process of writing it was, it was a gradual sense of relief because it was like, oh, I see. This is this has substance, you know. This this is this has great emotional weight, and that's of course what I was worried about. Because, of course, on the face of it, it's a it's a it's a rather simple plot, and um, and you know, I worried that it wouldn't have enough tension in it, that uh, it wouldn't have enough suspense in it. Actually, I think there is a fair bit of suspense, although you know. What you're not, you're not sitting there worried, uh, oh, is Remington going to get through the triathlon? But you are worried about whether the marriage is going to get through the triathlon. Absolutely. Lionel, I'd like to end by just asking you a couple of questions about your reading. Right now, while everybody's in lockdown, people are all keen for good book recommendations. So I had two questions for you. What have you read recently, or perhaps not so recently, that you've absolutely loved? And what are you looking forward to reading next? Well, the most enjoyable uh, discovery for me recently was Elizabeth Taylor. And I do not mean the actress. Um, and there's one of her books in particular called Mrs. Palfrey at the Claremont. Yes, that's it. And it's actually quite a slim book about an older woman. Um, who's fallen on, who's in, you know, kind of diminished circumstances. And I won't tell you any more about it than that, but it's, it's a gem. It's a perfect book. It's entrancing. Fantastic. And what's next? What are you really looking forward to reading? Oh gosh. Um, Lawrence Osborne has a new book out, uh, which let's see, it's called the glass kingdom. I love him. I think he's a great writer. So I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, my friend Rupert Thompson also has a new book out, out called NVK. And let's see. Just looking at my pile of proofs here. Uh, Matthew Neal has a new book out called Pilgrims. And um, Matthew Neal wrote one of my very favorite books of all time called English Passengers. Um, which I think that 
uh, you and Down Under should especially like because it's uh, it's about a a trip to uh, discover the original Garden of Eden in Tasmania. Wow! So it's it's about your part of the world. Perfect. Lionel, thank you so much for joining me here on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and I wish you the very best of luck with your virtual book tour. There will be book thank tours. You. There will be book tours again, but for now they're virtual like this conversation. But thank you so much for joining me and for being so generous in your answers. Well, um, thank you for talking to me. Thank you, Lionel. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbody.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. Since it's a new podcast, it would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.